Hello and welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Welcome to Podcast 25. Uh, I'm Dave Niven and you can hear this or download this on iTunes, Podfeed, Stitcher, Spreaker uh, or of course our website which is socialworldpodcast.com. Now, today, what I want to do is a couple of things with you. Last Friday, we had a packed conference in the southwest of England and Bristol. This is my childhood. There will be no other looking at early years, looking at the traumatized, very young children, how to work with them. And we had experts from right across the board who were speaking, and the whole matter was digested fully by a packed conference that really appreciated the whole day. Now, we recorded it, and so we're probably going to put it out as a special podcast when we've pulled all the recording together, maybe within the next week. However, in the meantime, we're going to let you have a little taster uh, at the end of this episode, as two of the speakers, Dame Tessa Jowell and Jane Evans, talked to the BBC about the issues just before the conference, so... This was their idea of what they wanted to talk about and gives a little taste of what they actually said. But I do assure you, it's well worth waiting for the full conference. Before that, though, the whole matter of whether children's services and especially child protection should be farmed out to the private sector uh, is the issue I want to talk about. Now, the debate started online at the Guardian professional site with Professor Julian Legrand, who's the Professor of Social Policy at the London School of Economics, setting out the case that uh, should local government still provide children's services. And he's caused quite a storm, and I gather in his usual way has actually provoked quite a lot of uh, resentment, quite a lot of anger, and I guess that's what he wanted to do. So let's have a look at the two sides of this. Now, on one hand, he, he lists, firstly, several high-profile cases that recently have come to the public attention where children have either been very badly injured or died at the hands of their parents, and in which social services have been criticised for uh, failures of communication, failures of practice, and not really doing the job properly. And what he's actually saying is children's services have had to bear much of the responsibility and it's not just a question, he says, of extreme events. He, he felt that of 50 child protection services inspected by Ofsted in 2012-2013, uh, previously identified as weak, about a third of them were still inadequate and judged inadequate in terms of their overall performance. Now that's challenged later on by some of the responses to this, but this is his premise, effectively is, that there's a huge chunk of social services in England and Wales that's not fit for purpose in terms of protecting children. And it would be much better if this was all privatised and put out to the private sector and people would actually bid for the ability to actually deliver child protection to the community. Now, immediately there's several problems on both sides that comes up. He says that the problem often seems to be one of long-term council neglect. 
In other words, it's easier to leave things alone because nobody, there's no real votes in child protection. And so he thinks there's a build-up over the years. Politicians and officials prefer to look the other way. And poor practice, poor management leads on to difficult recruitment practice, difficult retention of good social workers. In turn, that is a full cycle. It's a cyclical thing that actually then leads to poor practice and poor management. But on the other hand, he feels too that heavy-handed regulation, and he thinks that that's what comes from Ofsted at the moment, is counterproductive, and it continues to, in his words, demotivate an already demoralized staff. And he goes on to talk about various different places in the country who've had particularly bad um, inspections and who've got particularly low morale, high vacancy rates, and uh, obviously the possibility of increased risk to the children that they're actually looking after. So, on one hand, that's where we start with Julian Regrand's kind of statements. But he then goes on to talk about reversing poor practice after a long history of failure. Now he thinks that there's skills out there in local authorities and in social enterprise and voluntary and private sectors that would be able to step into the breach and immediately sort of the whole, the whole issue about child protection, the whole quality of child protection would be transformed if you just let the market dictate and actually effectively let social enterprise take over here. There's one or two places in the country where this has actually happened before and I'm, I must admit the jury is still out on that so there's no evidence as I see it yet where the private sector has actually succeeded in proving that this is a good thing to do. But I'll just read you his concluding paragraph. And it says, Sometimes the only way forward for a failing public service is to create new institutions to provide the service. We'll never be able to stop all cruelty to children completely, but we could do better if we take the opportunity to build on new ways of providing for their care. Okay, fine. So... What was the response? Well, it came in thick and fast. This is a highly depressing piece, someone said. The reasons for these, this failure is largely due to a reluctance to share information between different disciplines. That's health, education, police and social services. This would only be exacerbated if a private company got involved, however arm's length it purports to be. So there's the scene being set immediately for those that were fairly outraged by Professor Legrand's um, comments. <laughs> Somebody else says, is there anything that the London School of M Economics doesn't think that we should privatise? It's nothing to do with uh, what he said. It's due to a lack of communication between the public sector authorities. Nothing. It's not a lack of private sector involvement. Now, this begins to lead into what I personally feel about this, which essentially is I think this whole thing's a red herring. I think it's nothing to do with private or public. It's to do with the quality of social work. And the quality of social work is phenomenal. When you actually come to look at the depth of work that goes on, yes, there are these cases where things fail, but the reason for these things failing 
seem to me to be lack of staff, lack of morale, lack of investment, and turning it on its head, one of what Professor one of Professor Legrand's comments, turning on its head this business about there's no votes in child protection, well quite. I mean, and therefore we ought to be investing far more in it and not looking at a political football. What we ought to be doing is looking at the framework and the whole fabric of our community. Because if more money, if more resources, if a fully staffed social services with improved social work education was actually put into um, dealing with and helping the vulnerable families then there's a cost-benefit in there. The cost-benefit analysis in this whole thing is spend a bit to get a lot. Spend a bit more on preventative services and you stop the extremes happening to a large extent later on. Get involved early on. Spend the money early on. Get more direct work with children that social workers should be doing in the first place rather than chasing their tails or running around spinning plates at the end of sticks just to keep the caseloads awake. Um... Higher caseloads, lower achievements. So when we're actually now talking about what to do in the future, I really don't see that privatising child protection is a particularly sensible way forward. We've got a huge structure. Do you realise that there are something like 600,000 cases every year that social workers get involved with where there's risk identified to children and yes a handful fall through the net yes a handful fail to be dealt with properly and yes sometimes social workers are to blame for not doing their job well but on the other hand if you look at medicine look at the police look at any of these other so-called public service institutions where individuals are, are highly trained to perform a service that actually involves saving lives or involves protecting the health or the bodies of people in the community. Many of them fail too, yet we don't have this witch hunt that goes on and on and on from people like Professor, Le Professor Legrand trying to sort of somehow or other twist things to make it into a political agenda. What we should be having is a proper debate about what funding and what resources need to be put in place that would save the country a lot of money, save the population a lot of angst, and save the children a lot of harm. These are the sort of things that should be happening. These are the sort of things that we're worried about, and that effectively do not seem to be coordinated. Every, every day in England and Wales, there are something to the region of between thirty and 40,000 children who are the subject of uh, risk plans, at-risk plans, and effectively uh, are considered to be at risk from an adult, usually somebody very close to them, either in the family or in the immediate family circle. And social workers, day in, day out, are interrupting that abuse, preventing it from carrying on, challenging the abusers, and trying their very best to actually assess the risk as to whether the child needs to be uh, removed or whether support services will do the job. So essentially, it's all there already. It doesn't need to come under the hat of private enterprise. It doesn't need to be a profit-based 
organization, and that's exactly what Professor Legrand's uh, plan would lead to. You would be looking at children, in my view, being discarded because effectively they were marginal and therefore they weren't worth the, they weren't worth the candle in terms of the investment. That's the kind of thing that the market would bring to it because the market is dominated by profit. Whereas the local authority approach, again, although there's no votes in it, it's dominated by skill and by preventative work and not by monetized kind of services. I just think that people like Professor Legrand, somebody called them politically bankrupt ideas, tired old arguments, amorphous statements. For example, better solution in many cases is to create a new provider to so-called break with the past. Well, somebody reckoned that he was being a bit disingenuous when he said uh, several local authorities. Well, this person reckons only seven, and that's not a lot. Now, when it also comes to the, the, the critique, if you like, of current services, I'm not going to stand here and actually say that they don't deserve to be challenged, they don't deserve to be exposed, they don't deserve to be held up to the light, and bad practice, challenged. Social workers that are not fit for purpose, challenged, moved on. We can't have people who are not capable of understanding how to protect children properly or how to do the job properly in the front line. But so many of these social workers are lacking in morale, lacking in support, lacking in resources, but they're certainly not lacking in skill. But that skill is dampened by all these other factors kicking in. There is a high vacancy rate in many local authorities. And of course, the media profile of these places doesn't really help recruitment and it doesn't really help retention of staff. And so what you get essentially is the obvious, and that is places that are highlighted, places that are held up in the media as bad authorities. Effectively, there's a drain of social workers. There's a kind of a diaspora, if you like, that, that leaves them and doesn't re be replaced by skillful, experienced staff. It's usually replaced by agency staff who are usually quite good but transient and therefore in terms of the whole social work philosophy they're not there to make long-term relationships with the few, the people they work with and or newly qualified staff who may or may not be good but certainly aren't experienced. So when it comes down to it what you're left with is uh, an authority riddled with a lack of experience and a lack of permanence. And that is just a recipe for dangerous practice. And if you have also on top of that uh, vacancies within some of the critical teams, then at the end of the day, you're just going to have an exhausted workforce that is quite dangerous. And that's exactly what's happening. And it's, so it's just a case of let's get on with this recruitment of social workers. Let's get on with improving the education of social workers. All of these have been talked about recently. Let's get on about the opening up to the public uh, in the media about what social work workers do. Let's get rid of some of the myths. Let's get some of, rid of the scare stories. 
Because ultimately, just like medicine, just like law enforcement, just like education, social work is mainly a good profession full of good people. Yes, there always will be some that won't be up to the task, like I said. But at the end of the day, it mainly is a very good profession. And I've been involved with it for about 30 years now. And I've seen I've seen what's come, I've seen what's gone, I've seen what's, what's being recommended, and I've seen the idiotic recommendations for some, some cases, and I've seen the really powerful, good changes that have happened as well. Slowly, slowly, we're getting to a point especially in public perception, where social work is actually being respected more. The profession is actually being regarded as a, a solid, good, uh, work, worthwhile profession that actually can make a change and can make a difference if social workers are allowed to do what they've been trained for without being harassed, without being overloaded. And to be quite frank, without actually being forced to do so much bureaucracy that it strangles them. So, when I get see Professor Legrand's not new ideas about privatising child protection services, it just makes me think, well, maybe the best thing to come out of this is the fact that it will stir up the vast majority of social workers to actually agree and uh, with each other and actually start coming out themselves and saying just how wrong he is and just how the resource issue is the main thing, the credibility issue is the main thing, the public image issue is the main thing. And places like the British Association of Social Workers and various others now have got that responsibility and I believe are taking it on well to help demystify the role of social work in childcare especially, and encourage people to understand the goodness that goes on, the excellent practice that goes on in most places, most days of the year. So if you get these good news stories coming out, like I've said before, what happens then is you get a bit of a balance. So it's not all just the only time you hear about social workers when there's a crisis. Plenty of good news stories get put out, and I think local authorities and employers have got a real responsibility in this. Now, I must admit, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Do not confuse confidentiality with secrecy. Actually, tell the stories about social workers. Ask people, you know, about what was your experience of social work. Lots of them will say they had a good experience of social work. So let the public begin to understand that there's a balance here. Let the public begin to understand that there's plenty of opportunities to hear good news about social work. I mean, for example, look at the media. When did any of you listening see a headline that said, social worker does good job? And just think about it logically. Of course, there's plenty of opportunities for people to say that and evidence it, but we never see it. Why is that? Why is it always in the media that we have this ridiculous imbalance? What is it about those in the institution of the media that actually feel that they have to only write negatively about social work and social workers? It just makes no real sense. So at the end of the day, 
we need to have an opening. We need to, there are places in the country that are doing it and doing it very well and beginning to open the door and beginning to let in journalists and others to see and talk to frontline staff. Because these are the people that the public, I think, will um, warm to more than any. The people who are actually doing the job, not necessarily senior managers who people expect to um, be apologists or be people who will talk on behalf of social work and try and big it up and try and make it sound better. Talk to the, the, the frontline staff. Let them be heard. And at the end of the day, when a crisis does arrive, at least there'll be a bit of balance. There's no reason to be secret in some cases. For example, if a tragedy occurs and a child dies then of course we can't talk about that immediate case to the public until well after all the reports have been done or all the investigations or the, re the case reviews happened, whatever, or the police have, have finished their criminal investigation. But what we can do way before that is say, look, let me explain to you, media, whoever you are, written media, broadcast media, social media, whatever it happens to be, let me explain to you what happens when a child gets injured. What goes on within social service departments? What goes on between in, in Safeguarding Children Board? Let's talk about it. This is what happens. A, B, C, D, E. And these are the points where we can talk to you. These are the points where we can release information to you. These are the points where we can actually face you and share with you what's happened. Transparently, openly. But in the meantime, we can't tell you until then because we don't want to identify other children. We don't want to... We don't want to interrupt the criminal investigation or the serious case review until we really know what happened here. But as soon as we do, we'll tell you. There's nothing wrong with that. But how often do you actually get that chance? And how often do we hear that? So again, I really do not think that there's major problems within the structure and where social work for children's services sits. And so to counter Professor Legrand, I really would say, stay within the structure it is, but it's improvable. We can improve it. It needs investment. Fine. So invest, because at the end of the day, there'll be a major saving, both in money and in children's lives. Now let's hear that interview with Dame Tessa Jowell and Jane Evans that was on the BBC. Right. To more serious matters, not the potholes aren't serious, of course, domestic violence, substance abuse and how to be a good parent. It's all being discussed at a conference today called This Is My Childhood. It's happening in Bristol. A keynote speaker is the Right Honourable Dame Tessa Jowell, Labour MP. She's part of an all-party group looking at the first 1,001 days of a child's life. Earlier, I spoke to Dame Tessa and Jane Evans, who's a, tra a trauma parenting expert and trainer, and I asked them what this conference was all about. The reason for this conference now is that finally everybody seems to have got their ducks in a row at last and realised the vital importance of getting in early to children's lives, particularly vulnerable children. We have the neuroscience now and all the research to show that that has the best outcomes for children. 
What's interesting, of course, is this week alone we've had the proposal of the Cinderella Law, which deals with the potential mental abuse of a child, and only yesterday we were discussing potential changes to uh, grooming legislation about how to protect children from those who are groomed. Uh, is it now that we're really trying to get onto the front foot of something that we've just left to parents, or are we in danger of interfering with the raising of children? Um, I think that it's the children will thank us in this interfering. Um, we need to protect children far better than we are doing now. We are letting them down all the time by just simply not passing on to parents and to carers this information about brain development, how it happens even pre-birth, and that by intervening with the right support for parents and the right level of knowledge and education that they can support their child's emotional development far more than, than they may do now. Well, I'll tell you what, Jane Evans, let me just bring in uh, Tessa Jowell, the Right Honourable Tessa Jowell, Dame Tessa Jowell. Dame Tessa, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, where do you think we've gone wrong as a society to, to not understand that we are harming our children in the way that we clearly have been harming our children in so many well, respects. Well, there are two things, and I was um, very interested by the important points that uh, Jane was making in your interview with her. I think the first thing is we now know so much more about how uh, the basis for healthy development of children uh, can be laid, and that is by giving this special, highly focused support to parents in the first, what are called the first thousand days. I mean, that means from conception, more or less, mm. right through until a child is two and a half, three. This is an absolutely critical period for the development of the child's brain and its uh, cap the capabilities that then follow from that. So I think that's the first thing. We know more. I think the second is, you're right to point up this sort of endless um, sort of rebalancing between what it's proper for, if you like, the state represented usually by social services or health service, what it's right and when it's right for the state to intervene, um, as opposed to what is the private business of parents. Mm. And I think the fact is that it is both. And you know, every time there is an appalling child abuse scandal and, you know, a little person has been brutalised uh, beyond the eyes and the attention of social services or social services being rather unseeing, not responding to the evidence. There is a sort of moral spasm. Well, this is outrageous and what goes wrong, you know, what can possibly have gone wrong? That's the one stance. And then, of course, the, the, the other stance is that there has to be this sense of greater openness and sharing with parents. And, I mean, I start from the basis that there is no baby born to a mother and father where that mother doesn't want to be the best mother she can for that baby. And that's, and I mean, that's... Th can then, and ki things can then go wrong. And that's a very important factor, uh, Jane Evans, if I can come back to you. That's a very important factor. And, and I wonder, I think Dame Tessa makes a very interesting point there. If you look at what's, what's happened, baby P onwards... I wonder whether we're a little bit... We're getting to a, a, a dangerous territory here that, accepting all that we now know, 
that we're scaring people, that we're, we're, almost, we're almost at a danger of being a little bit too fragile about parenting, Jane Evans? I don't think you can be too fragile about it. Um, I've worked with families for 20 years and I've fostered children who are highly traumatised and I'm currently working with um, adolescents who are using aggression towards their parents. And it's, those are the things that get me out of bed in the morning to do this job is that we are not giving parents the information they need. So it's not so much a heavy-handed approach, but even in pregnancy just offering pregnant mums and expectant dads information on brain development and the importance of early relationships and being present in your child's life. Um, we have such a, a catastrophe really brewing mm. in terms of children not getting their emotional needs met on a day-to-day -day basis because parents are under so much pressure to be in work, to keep their jobs to make the next payment on whatever that they're so distracted from their children's emotional needs they might meet their physical ones but we now know that that what children how they thrive and how they do well in life is is to have that emotional connection and also into school as well you know schools are under massive pressure now it's all about um academic achievement but the children will not do well unless somebody is meeting their basic emotional needs. And isn't that the reality, Dame Tessa Jow, that if you go back two generations, the, the, the parents of the current crop of parents had a different life, and the life that we have today in 2014 is not conducive to bringing up the children in the way that it was perhaps 40, 50 years ago. No, I think that's too pessimistic a view, and I think it discounts the, uh, you know, the ambition and the optimism that the vast majority of parents have about uh, their, their hopes for their uh, new baby, for their young child. And the fact is that most parents uh, get it more or less right. There are these extreme cases where, you know, we all uh, uh, feel shocked and a sense of almost shared responsibility for the appalling brutality to children. But, uh, you know, Jane is right. Every parent um, wants to learn how to do more and be better. You know, for instance, um, one of the best indicators of later um, uh, uh, sort of achievement in children is if they've had th their father read to them as a very young child. Now, that's in a way a proxy. You know, if you have dads who are reading to their children, their little children, singing to their little children, then in a way you can assume that all sorts of other things are happening, that there is a sense of balance between the uh, responsibilities for parenting exercised by the two parents. You do have a dad who's engaged in the upbringing of his young children, and all those are good things. So I think it's two things. First of all, there are these absolutely horrific and mercifully reasonably exceptional cases and so we have to be less coy about uh, noticing when children are in distress and the second is that parents are hungry learners so we shouldn't feel uh, coy either 
about withholding the kind of information about good and successful parenting that increases their satisfaction as parents and improves the chances okay. for their little children. Well, the conference is today at Ashton Court uh, Mansion. Uh, Dame Tessa Jowell, MP, and uh, Jane Evans, uh, Trauma Parenting Specialist. Thank you both for joining me this morning on BBC Pleasure. Radio Thank Bristol. You. Thank you. Well, there we are. That was uh, another week. It goes so quick, doesn't it? But listen, look out, please, for the next podcast, which will have some really substantial uh, recording from the uh, conference that was at Ashton Court on uh, Friday at uh, April the 4th, southwest of England and Bristol. It's got a fantastic lineup. We'll introduce all the speakers, the subject, but it's all about childhood, very early childhood, and working with very young children who've suffered incredible trauma, whether it's domestic abuse, substance misuse, or mental health matters, all in the adults that are looking after these children, and how we can work with them, what we have to think about in terms of the, the whole surrounds of the child, and the, the progress that we can make if we actually approach it in the right way. And I've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and a terrific uh, attendance at that conference. It was really, really worthwhile. So I look forward to bringing it to you, as I do the following week as well. So many thanks for listening. Remember, you've got that uh, uh, speak pipe, one click just beside the podcast or the blog, to leave your views, and I'll include it in the uh, next podcast. So leave that, reviews on iTunes, wherever it happens to be. Just let me know what you think and let me know some ideas that you might have for the future as well. And I'll most definitely try and include them. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. 